Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we're covering chapters 9 and 10 of The Return of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs, beginning with chapter 9, Numa, El Adria. On the same day that Kadur ben Sadin rode south, the diligence from the north brought Tarzan a letter from Darnot, which had been forwarded from Sidi Bel Abes. It opened the old wound that Tarzan would have been glad to have forgotten, yet he was not sorry that Darnot had written for one at least of his subjects could never cease to interest Tarzan. Here is the letter. My dear Jean, Since last I wrote you, I have been across to London on a matter of business. I was there but three days. The very first day I came upon an old friend of yours, quite unexpectedly, in Henrietta Street. Now you never in the world would guess whom. None other than Mr. Samuel T. Fillander. But it is true. I can see your look of incredulity. "'Nor is this all. "'He insisted that I return to the hotel with him, "'and there I found the others, "'Professor Archimedes Q. Porter, "'Miss Porter, "'and that enormous black woman, "'Miss Porter's maid, Esmeralda, "'you will recall. "'While I was there, Clayton came in. "'They are to be married soon, "'or rather sooner, "'for I rather suspect "'that we shall receive announcements "'almost any day. "'On account of his father's death, "'it is to be a very quiet affair, "'only blood relatives.' While I was alone with Mr. Fillander, the old fellow became rather confidential. Said Miss Porter had already postponed the wedding on three different occasions. He confided that it appeared to him that she was not particularly anxious to marry Clayton at all, but this time it seems that it is quite likely to go through. Of course they all asked after you, but I respected your wishes in the matter of your true origin, and only spoke to them of your present affairs. Miss Porter was especially interested in everything I had to say about you. "'and asked many questions. "'I am afraid I took a rather unchivalrous delight "'in picturing your desire and resolve "'to go back eventually to your native jungle. "'I was sorry afterward, "'for it did seem to cause her real anguish "'to contemplate the awful dangers "'to which you wish to return. "'And yet,' she said, "'I do not know. "'There are more unhappy fates "'than the grim and terrible jungle "'presents to Monsieur Tarzan. "'At least his conscience will be free from remorse.' and there are moments of quiet and restfulness by day, and vistas of exquisite beauty. You may find it strange that I should say it, who experienced such terrifying experiences in that frightful forest. Yet at times I long to return, for I cannot but feel but the happiest moments of my life were spent there. There was an expression of ineffable sadness on her face as she spoke, and I could not but feel that she knew that I knew her secret, and that this was her way of transmitting to you a last tender message from a heart that might still enshrine your memory, though its possessor belonged to another. Clayton appeared nervous and ill at ease while you were the subject of conversation. He wore a worried and harassed expression, yet he was very kindly in his expression of interest in you. I wonder if he suspects the truth about you. Tennington came in with Clayton. They are great friends, you know. He was about to set out upon one of his interminable cruises in that yacht of his, and was urging the entire party to accompany him. Tried to inveigle me into it, too. Is thinking of circumnavigating Africa this time. I told him that his precious toy would take him and some of his friends to the bottom of the ocean one of these days if he didn't get it out of his head that she was a liner or a battleship. I returned to Paris day before yesterday, and yesterday I met the Count and Countess de Caud at the races. They inquired after you. De Caud really seems quite fond of you. "'doesn't appear to harbor the least ill-will. "'Olga is as beautiful as ever, but a trifle subdued. 
"'I imagine that she learned a lesson through her acquaintance with you "'that will serve her in good stead during the balance of her life. "'It is fortunate for her, and for Dr. Cowett as well, "'that it was you, and not another man more sophisticated. "'Had you really paid court to Olga's heart, "'I'm afraid there would have been no hope for either of you. "'She asked me to tell you that Nicholas had left France. "'She paid him twenty thousand francs to go away and stay. "'She is congratulating herself that she got rid of him "'before he tried to carry out a threat. "'He recently made her that he should kill you at the first opportunity. "'She said that she should hate to think that her brother's blood was on your hands, "'for she is very fond of you, "'and made no bones in saying so before the Count. "'It never for a moment seemed to occur to her "'that there might be any possibility of any other outcome "'of a meeting between you and Nicholas. "'The Count quite agreed with her in that.' He added that it would take a regiment of Rokoffs to kill you. He has a most healthy respect for your prowess. Have been ordered back to my ship. She sails from Havre in two days under sealed orders. If you will address me in her care, the letters will find me eventually. I shall write you as soon as another opportunity presents. Your sincere friend, Paul Darnot. I fear, mused Tarzan half aloud, that Olga has thrown away her twenty thousand francs. He read over that part of Darnot's letter several times in which he had quoted from his conversation with Jane Porter. Tarzan derived a rather pathetic happiness from it, but it was better than no happiness at all. The following three weeks were quite uneventful. On several occasions Tarzan saw the mysterious Arab, and once again he had been exchanging words with Lieutenant Gernois, but no amount of espionage or shadowing by Tarzan revealed the Arab's lodgings, the location of which Tarzan was anxious to ascertain. Gernois, never cordial, had kept more than ever aloof from Tarzan since the episode in the dining-room of the hotel at Omal. His attitude on the few occasions that they had been thrown together had been distinctly hostile. That he might keep up the appearance of the character he was playing, Tarzan spent considerable time hunting in the vicinity of Bu Saida. He would spend entire days in the foothills, ostensibly searching for gazelle. But on the few occasions that he came close enough to any of the beautiful little animals to harm them, he invariably allowed them to escape without so much as taking his rifle from its boot. Tarzan could see no sport in slaughtering the most harmless and defenseless of God's creatures for the mere pleasure of killing. In fact, Tarzan had never killed for pleasure, nor to him was there pleasure in killing. It was the joy of righteous battle that he loved, the ecstasy of victory, and the keen and successful hunt for food in which he pitted his skill and craftiness against the skill and craftiness of another. But to come out of a town filled with food to shoot down a soft-eyed, pretty gazelle, ah, that was crueler than the deliberate and cold-blooded murder of a fellow man. Tarzan would have none of it, and so he hunted alone that none might discover the sham that he was practicing. And once, probably because of the fact that he rode alone, he was like to have lost his life. He was riding slowly through a little ravine when a shot sounded close behind him, and a bullet passed through the cork helmet he wore. Although he turned at once and galloped rapidly to the top of the ravine, there was no sign of any enemy, nor did he see aught of another human being until he reached Abu Saida. Yes, he soliloquized, in recalling the occurrence. Olga has indeed thrown away her twenty thousand francs. That night he was Captain Gerard's guest at a little dinner. Your hunting has not been very fortunate? questioned the officer. No, replied Tarzan. The game hereabout is timid. "'nor do I care particularly about hunting game-birds or antelope. "'I think I shall move on further south "'and have a try at some of your Algerian lions.' "'Good!' exclaimed the captain. "'We are marching toward Jelfa on the morrow. "'You shall have company that far at least. 
Lieutenant Gernois and I, with a hundred men, are ordered south to patrol a district in which the marauders are giving considerable trouble. Possibly we may have the pleasure of hunting the lion together. What say you? Tarzan was more than pleased, nor did he hesitate to say so. But the captain would have been astonished had he known the real reason of Tarzan's pleasure. Gernois was sitting opposite the ape-man. He did not seem so pleased with his captain's invitation. "'You will find lion-hunting more exciting than gazelle-shooting,' remarked Captain Gerard. "'And more dangerous.' "'Even gazelle-shooting has its dangers,' replied Tarzan, "'especially when one goes alone. I found it so today. I also found that while the gazelle is the most timid of animals, it is not the most cowardly.' He let his glance rest only casually upon Gernois after he had spoken, for he did not wish the man to know that he was under suspicion, or surveillance, no matter what he might think. The effect of his remark upon him, however, might tend to prove his connection with, or knowledge of, certain recent happenings. Tarzan saw a dull red creep up from beneath Gernois's collar. He was satisfied, and quickly changed the subject. When the column rode south from Bou Saida the next morning, there were half a dozen Arabs bringing up the rear. "'They are not attached to the command,' replied Gerard, in response to Tarzan's query. "'They merely accompany us on the road for companionship.' Tarzan had learned enough about Arab character since he had been in Algeria to know that this was no real motive, for the Arab is never over-fond of the companionship of strangers, and especially of French soldiers. So his suspicions were aroused and he decided to keep a sharp eye on the little party that trailed behind the column at a distance of about a quarter of a mile. But they did not come close enough even during the halts to enable him to obtain a close scrutiny of them. He had long been convinced that there were hired assassins on his trail, nor was he in great doubt but that Rokoff was at the bottom of the plot. Whether it was revenge for the several occasions in the past that Tarzan had defeated the Russians' purposes and humiliated him, or was in some way connected with his mission in the Jernois affair, he couldn't determine. If the latter, and it seemed probable, since the evidence he had had that Gernois suspected him, then he had two rather powerful enemies to contend with, for there would be many opportunities in the wilds of Algeria, for which they were bound, to dispatch a suspected enemy quietly, and without attracting suspicion. After camping at Jelfa for two days the column moved to the southwest, from whence word had come that the marauders were operating against the tribes whose duars were situated at the foot of the mountains. The little band of Arabs who had accompanied them from Bou Saida had disappeared suddenly the very night that orders had been given to prepare for the morrow's march from Jelfa. Tarzan made casual inquiries among the men, but none could tell him why they had left, or in what direction they had gone. He did not like the looks of it, especially in view of the fact that he had seen Gernois in conversation with one of them some half an hour after Captain Gerard had issued his instructions relative to this new move. Only Gernois and Tarzan knew the direction of the proposed march. All the soldiers knew was that they were to be prepared to break camp early the next morning. Tarzan wondered if Gernois could have revealed their destination to the Arabs. Late that afternoon they went into camp at a little oasis on which was the duar of a sheik whose flocks were being stolen, and whose herdsmen were being killed. The Arabs came out of their goatskin tents and surrounded the soldiers, asking many questions in the native tongue, for the soldiers were themselves natives. Tarzan, who by this time, with the assistance of Abdul, had picked up quite a smattering of Arab, questioned one of the younger men who had accompanied the sheik, while the latter paid his respects to Captain Gerard. No, he had seen no party of six horsemen riding from the direction of Jelfa, 
There were other oases scattered about. Possibly they had been journeying to one of these. Then there were the marauders in the mountains above. They often rode north to Busaida in small parties, and even as far as Omal and Boira. It might indeed have been a few marauders returning to the band from a pleasure trip to one of those cities. Early the next morning Captain Gerard split his command in two, giving Lieutenant Gernois command of one party, while he headed the other. They were to scour the mountains upon opposite sides of the plain. "'And with which detachment will Monsieur Tarzan ride?' asked the captain. "'Or maybe it is that Monsieur does not care to hunt marauders.' "'Oh, I shall be delighted to go,' Tarzan hastened to explain. He was wondering what excuse he could make to accompany Gernois. His embarrassment was short-lived, and was relieved from a most unexpected source. It was Gernois himself who spoke. "'If my captain will forego the pleasure of Monsieur Tarzan's company for this once, I shall esteem it an honor indeed to have Monsieur ride with me today,' he said. Nor was his tone lacking in cordiality. In fact, Tarzan imagined that he had overdone it a trifle. But even so, he was both astounded and pleased, hastening to express his delight at the arrangement. And so it was that Lieutenant Gernois and Tarzan rode off side by side at the head of the little detachment of Spahis. Gernois's cordiality was short-lived. No sooner had they ridden out of sight of Captain Gerard and his men than he lapsed once more into his accustomed taciturnity. As they advanced, the ground became rougher. Steadily it ascended toward the mountains, into which they filed through a narrow canyon close to noon. By the side of a little rivulet, Gernois called the midday halt. Here the men prepared and ate their frugal meal and refilled their canteens. After an hour's rest they advanced again along the canyon until they presently came to a little valley from which several rocky gorges diverged. Here they halted, while Gernois minutely examined the surrounding heights from the center of the depression. "'We shall separate here,' he said, several riding into each of these gorges. And then he commenced to detail his various squads and issue instructions to the non-commissioned officers who were to command them. When he had finished, he turned to Tarzan. "'Monsieur will be so good as to remain here until we return.' Tarzan demurred, but the officer cut him short. "'There may be fighting for one of these sections,' he said, "'and troops cannot be embarrassed by civilian non-combatants during action.' "'But, my dear lieutenant,' expostulated Tarzan, "'I am most ready and willing to place myself under command of yourself "'or of any of your sergeants or corporals, "'and to fight in the ranks as they direct. "'It's what I came for.' "'I should be glad to think so,' retorted Gernois, "'with a sneer he made no attempt to disguise. "'Then shortly—' "'You are under my orders, and they are that you are to remain here until we return. "'Let that end the matter.' "'And he turned and spurred away at the head of his men. "'A moment later Tarzan found himself alone in the midst of a desolate mountain fastness. "'The sun was hot, so he sought the shelter of a nearby tree, "'where he tethered his horse and sat down upon the ground to smoke. "'Inwardly he swore at Gerdois for the trick he'd played upon him. "'A mean little revenge!' thought Tarzan, and then suddenly it occurred to him that the man would not be such a fool as to antagonize him through a trivial annoyance of so petty a description. There must be something deeper than this behind it. With that thought he arose and removed his rifle from its boot. He looked to its loads and saw that the magazine was full. Then he inspected his revolver. After this preliminary precaution he scanned the surrounding heights and the mouths of several gorges. He was determined that he should not be caught napping. The sun sank lower and lower, and yet there was no sign of returning spahis. 
At last the valley was submerged in shadow. Tarzan was too proud to go back to camp until he had given the detachment ample time to return to the valley, which he thought was to have been their rendezvous. With the closing in of night he felt safer from attack, for he was at home in the dark. He knew that none might approach him so cautiously as to elude those alert and sensitive ears of his, and then there were his eyes, too, for he could see well at night, and his nose, if they came toward him from upwind, and would apprise him of the approach of an enemy while they were still a great way off. So he felt that he was in little danger, and thus lulled to a sense of security, he fell asleep, with his back against a tree. He must have slept for several hours, for when he was suddenly awakened by the frightened snorting and plunging of his horse, the moon was shining full upon the little valley, and there, not ten paces before him, stood the grim cause of the terror of his mount. Superb, majestic, his grateful tail extended and quivering, and his two eyes of fire riveted full upon his prey, stood Numa el Adria, the black lion. A little thrill of joy tingled through Tarzan's nerves. It was like meeting an old friend after years of separation. For a moment he sat rigid to enjoy the magnificent spectacle of this lord of the wilderness. But now Numa was crouching for the spring. Very slowly Tarzan raised his gun to his shoulder. He had never killed a large animal with a gun in all his life. Heretofore he had depended upon his spear, his poisoned arrows, his rope, his knife, or his bare hands. Instinctively he wished that he had his arrows and his knife. He would have felt surer with them. Numa was lying quite flat upon the ground now, presenting only his head. Tarzan would have preferred to fire a little from one side, for he knew what terrific damage the lion could do if he lived two minutes, or even a minute after he was hit. The horse stood trembling in terror at Tarzan's back. The ape-man took a cautious step to one side. Numa but followed him with his eyes. Another step he took, and then another. Numa had not moved. Now he could aim at a point between the eye and the ear. His finger tightened upon the trigger, and as he fired, Numa sprang. At the same instant, the terrified horse made a last frantic effort to escape. The tether parted, and he went careening down the canyon toward the desert. No ordinary man could have escaped those frightful claws when Numa sprang from so short a distance. But Tarzan was no ordinary man. From earliest childhood his muscles had been trained by the fierce exigencies of his existence to act with the rapidity of thought. As quick as was El Adria, Tarzan of the Apes was quicker, and so the great beast crashed against a tree where he had expected to feel the soft flesh of man, while Tarzan, a couple of paces to the right, pumped another bullet into him that brought him clawing and roaring to his side. Twice more Tarzan fired in quick succession, and then El Adria lay still and roared no more. It was no longer Monsieur Jean Tarzan. It was Tarzan of the Apes that put a savage foot upon the body of his savage kill, and raising his face to the full moon, lifted his mighty voice in the weird and terrible challenge of his kind. A bull ape had made his kill. And the wild things in the wild mountains stopped in their hunting, and trembled at this new and awful voice, while down in the desert the children of the wilderness came out of their goatskin tents and looked toward the mountains, wondering what new and savage scourge had come to devastate their flocks. A half mile from the valley in which Tarzan stood, a score of white-robed figures, bearing long, wicked-looking guns, halted at the sound, and looked at one another with questioning eyes. But presently, as it was not repeated, they took up their silent, stealthy way toward the valley. Tarzan was now confident that Gernois had no intention of returning for him, but he could not fathom the object that had prompted the officer to desert him, yet leave him free to return to camp. His horse gone, 
he decided that it would be foolish to remain longer in the mountains, so he set out toward the desert. He had scarcely entered the confines of the canyon when the first of the white-robed figures emerged into the valley upon the opposite side. For a moment they scanned the little depression from behind sheltering boulders, but when they had satisfied themselves that it was empty, they advanced across it. Beneath the tree at one side they came upon the body of El Adria. With muttered exclamations they crowded about it. Then, a moment later, they hurried down the canyon which Tarzan was threading a brief distance in advance of them. They moved cautiously and in silence, taking advantage of shelter, as men do who are stalking men. We'll return to Chapter 10, right after these sponsor messages. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And now, Chapter 10, Through the Valley of the Shadow. As Tarzan walked down the wild canyon beneath the brilliant African moon, the call of the jungle was strong upon him. The solitude and the savage freedom filled his heart with life and buoyancy. Again, he was Tarzan of the Apes, every sense alert against the chance of surprise by some jungle enemy, yet treading lightly and with head erect in proud consciousness of his might. The nocturnal sounds of the mountains were new to him, yet they fell upon his ears like the soft voice of a half-forgotten love. Many he intuitively sensed. Ah, there was one that was familiar indeed, the distant coughing of Sheeta, the leopard. But there was a strange note in the final wail which made him doubt. It was a panther he heard. Presently a new sound, a soft, stealthy sound, obtruded itself among the others. No human ears other than the ape-man's would have detected it. At first he did not translate it, but finally he realized that it came from the bare feet of a number of human beings. They were behind him, and they were coming toward him quietly. He was being stalked. In a flash he knew why he had been left in that little valley by Jernois. But there had been a hitch in the arrangements. The men had come too late. Closer and closer came the footsteps. Tarzan halted and faced them, his rifle ready in his hand. Now he caught a fleeting glimpse of a white burnoose. He called aloud in French, asking what they would of him. His reply was the flash of a long gun, and with the sound of the shot Tarzan of the apes plunged forward upon his face. The Arabs did not rush out immediately. Instead, they waited to be sure that their victim did not rise. Then they came rapidly from their concealment and bent over him. It was soon apparent that he was not dead. One of the men put a muzzle of his gun to the back of Tarzan's head to finish him, but another waved him aside. If we bring him alive, the reward is to be greater, explained the latter. So they bound his hands and feet and, picking him up, placed him on the shoulders of four of their number. Then the march was resumed toward the desert. When they had come out of the mountains, they turned toward the south, and about daylight came to the spot where their horses stood in care of two of their number. From here on, their progress was more rapid. Tarzan, who had regained consciousness, was tied to a spare horse, which they evidently had brought for the purpose. His wound was but a slight scratch, which had furrowed the flesh across his temple. It had stopped bleeding, but the dried and clotted blood smeared his face and clothing. He had said no word since he had fallen into the hands of these Arabs, nor had they addressed him other than to issue a few brief commands to him when the horses had been reached. 
For six hours they rode rapidly across the burning desert, avoiding the oasis near which their way led. About noon they came to a duar of about twenty tents. Here they halted, and as one of the Arabs was releasing the alpha grass ropes which bound him to his mount, they were surrounded by a mob of men, women, and children. Many of the tribe, and more especially the women, appeared to take delight in heaping insults upon the prisoner, and some had even gone so far as to throw stones at him and strike him with sticks, when an old sheik appeared and drove them away. "'Ali ben Ahmed tells me,' he said, "'that this man sat alone in the mountains and slew El Adria. "'What the business of the stranger who sent us after him may be, I know not, "'and what he may do with this man when we turn him over to him, I care not. "'But the prisoner is a brave man, "'and while he is in our hands he shall be treated with the respect "'that be due to one who hunts the Lord with the large head, alone, and by night, and slays him. Tarzan had heard of the respect in which Arabs held a lion-killer, and he was not sorry that chance had played into his hands thus favorably to relieve him of the petty tortures of the tribe. Shortly after this he was taken to a goatskin tent upon the upper side of the duar. There he was fed and then securely bound, then left lying on a piece of native carpet, alone in the tent. He could see a guard sitting before the door of his frail prison, but when he attempted to force the stout bonds that held him, he realized that any extra precaution on the part of his captors was quite unnecessary. Not even his giant muscles could part those numerous strands. Just before dusk, several men approached the tent where he lay, and entered it. All were in Arab dress, but presently one of the number advanced to Tarzan's side, and as he let the folds of cloth that had hidden the lower half of his face fall away, the ape-man saw the malevolent features of Nicholas Rokoff. There was a nasty smile on the bearded lips. "'Ah, Monsieur Trazin,' he said, "'this is indeed a pleasure. But why do you not rise and greet your guest?' Then, with an ugly oath, "'Get up, you dog!' And drawing back his booted foot, he kicked Tarzan heavily in the side. "'And here is another, and another, and another,' he continued, as he kicked Tarzan about the face and side. "'One for each of the injuries you have done me.' The ape-man made no reply. He did not even deign to look upon the Russian again after the first glance of recognition. Finally the sheik, who had been standing a mute and frowning witness of the cowardly attack, intervened. "'Stop!' he commanded. "'Kill him, if you will, but I will see no brave man subjected to such indignities in my presence. I have half a mind to turn him loose, that I may see how long you would kick him then.' This threat put a sudden end to Rokoff's brutality for he had no craving to see Tarzan loosed from his bonds while he was within reach of those powerful hands. "'Very well,' he replied to the Arab. "'I shall kill him presently.' "'Not within the precincts of my duar,' returned the sheik. "'When he leaves here, he leaves alive. "'What you do with him in the desert is none of my concern, "'but I shall not have the blood of a Frenchman on the hands of my tribe "'on account of another man's quarrel. "'They would send soldiers here and kill many of my people, "'and burn our tents,' "'and drive away our flocks.' "'As you say,' growled Rokoff, "'I'll take him out into the desert below the Duar "'and dispatch him.' "'You will take him a day's ride from my country,' "'said the sheik, firmly, "'and some of my children shall follow you "'to see that you do not disobey me. "'Otherwise there may be two dead Frenchmen in the desert.' "'Rokoff shrugged. "'Then I shall have to wait until the morrow. "'It is already dark.' "'As you will,' said the sheik. "'but by an hour after dawn you must be gone from my duar. "'I have little liking for unbelievers. 
and none at all for a coward. Rokoff would have made some kind of retort, but he checked himself, for he realized that it would require but little excuse for the old man to turn upon him. Together they left the tent. At the door Rokoff could not resist the temptation to turn and fling a parting taunt at Tarzan. "'Sleep well, monsieur,' he said, "'and do not forget to pray well, for when you die tomorrow it will be in such agony that you will be unable to pray for blaspheming.' No one had bothered to bring Tarzan either food or water since noon, and consequently he suffered considerably from thirst. He wondered if it would be worthwhile to ask his guard for water, but after making two or three requests without receiving any response, he decided that it would not. Far up in the mountains he heard a lion roar. How much safer one was, he soliloquized, in the haunts of wild beasts than in the haunts of men. Never in all his jungle life had he been more relentlessly tracked down than in the past few months of his experience among civilized men. Never had he been any nearer death. Again the lion roared. It sounded a little nearer. Tarzan felt the old, wild impulse to reply with the challenge of his kind. His kind? He had almost forgotten that he was a man and not an ape. He tugged at his bonds. God, if he could but get them near those strong teeth of his! He felt a wild wave of madness sweep over him as his efforts to regain his liberty met with failure. Numa was roaring almost continually now. It was quite evident that he was coming down into the desert to hunt. It was the roar of a hungry lion. Tarzan envied him, for he was free. No one would tie him with ropes and slaughter him like a sheep. It was that which galled the ape-man. He did not fear to die. No, it was the humiliation of defeat before death, without even a chance to battle for his life. It must be near midnight, thought Tarzan. He had several hours to live. Possibly he could yet find a way to take Rokoff with him on the long journey. He could hear the savage lord of the desert quite close by now. Possibly he sought his meat from among the penned animals within the duar. For a long time silence reigned. Then Tarzan's trained ears caught the sound of a stealthily moving body. It came from the side of the tent nearest the mountains. The back. Nearer and nearer it came. He waited, listening intently for it to pass. For a time there was silence without, such a terrible silence that Tarzan was surprised he did not hear the breathing of the animal. He felt sure it must be crouching close to the back wall of his tent. There, he heard it. It was moving again. Closer it creeped. Tarzan turned his head in the direction of the sound. It was very dark within the tent. Slowly the back rose from the ground, forced up by the head and shoulders of a body that looked all black in the semi-darkness. Beyond was a faint glimpse of the dimly starlit desert. A grim smile played about Tarzan's lips. At least Rokoff will be cheated. How mad he will be, and death will be more merciful than he could have hoped for at the hands of the Russian. Now the back of the tent drops into place, and all is darkness again. Whatever it is inside the tent is with him. He hears it creeping close to him, and now it's beside him. He closes his eyes and waits for the mighty paw. Upon his upturned face falls the gentle touch of a soft hand groping in the dark, and then a girl's voice in a scarcely audible whisper pronounces his name. Tarzan. Yes, it is I, he whispered in reply. But in the name of heaven, who are you? The Uled Nail of Sisiasisa, came the answer. While she spoke, Tarzan could feel her working about his bonds. Occasionally the cold steel of a knife touched his flesh. A moment later, he was free. 
Come, she whispered. On hands and knees he followed her out of the tent by way she had come. She continued crawling thus flat to the ground until she reached a little patch of shrub. There she halted until he gained her side. For a moment he looked at her before he spoke. I cannot understand, he said at last. Why are you here? How did you know that I was a prisoner in that tent? How does it happen that it is you who have saved me? She smiled. I have come a long way tonight, she said, and we have a long way to go before we shall be out of danger. Come, I shall tell you all about it as we go. Together they rose and set off across the desert in the direction of the mountains. I was not quite sure that I should ever reach you, she said at last. El Adria is abroad tonight, and after I left the horses, I think he winded me and was following. I was terribly frightened. What a brave girl, he said. And you ran all that risk for a stranger? An alien? An unbeliever? She drew herself up very proudly. I am the daughter of the Sheik Kubar ben Sadin, she answered. I should be no fit daughter of his if I would not risk my life to save that of the man who saved mine, while he yet thought that I was but a common Oled nail. Nevertheless, he insisted, you are a very brave girl. But how did you know that I was a prisoner back there? Ahmed din Taib, who is my cousin on my father's side, was visiting some friends who belonged to the tribe that captured you. He was at the Duar when you were brought in. When he reached home, he was telling us about the big Frenchman who had been captured by Ali ben Ahmed, for another Frenchman who wished to kill him. From the description, I knew that it must be you. My father was away. I tried to persuade some of the men to come and save you, but they would not do it, saying, Let the unbelievers kill one another if they wish. It is none of our affair and if we go and interfere with Ali ben Ahmed's plans, we shall only stir up a fight with our own people. So when it was dark, I came alone, riding one horse and leading another for you. They are tethered not far from here. By morning we shall be within my father's duar. He should be there himself by now. Then let them come and try to take Kadur ben Sadin's friend. For a few moments they walked on in silence. We should be near the horses. "'She said, "'It is strange that I do not see them here.' "'Then a moment later she stopped with a little cry of consternation. "'They're gone!' she exclaimed. "'It is here that I tethered them.' "'Tarzan stooped to examine the ground. "'He found that a large shrub had been torn up by the roots. "'Then he found something else. "'There was a wry smile on his face as he rose and turned toward the girl. "'El Adria has been here. "'From the signs, though, I rather think that his prey escaped him. With a little start, they would be safe enough from him in the open. There was nothing to do but continue on foot. The way led them across a low spur of the mountains, but the girl knew the trail as well as she did her mother's face. They walked in easy, swinging strides, Tarzan keeping a hand's breadth behind the girl's shoulder that she might set the pace and thus be less fatigued. As they walked, they talked, occasionally stopping to listen for sounds of pursuit. It was now a beautiful, moonlit night. The air was crisp and invigorating. Behind them lay the interminable vista of the desert, dotted here and there with an occasional oasis. The date palms of the little fertile spot they had just left, and the circle of goatskin tents, stood out in sharp relief against the yellow sand. A phantom paradise upon a phantom sea. Before them rose the grim and silent mountains. Tarzan's blood leaped in his veins. This was life! He looked down upon the girl beside him, a daughter of the desert walking across the face of a dead world with the son of the jungle. 
He smiled at the thought. He wished that he had had a sister, and that she had been like this girl. What a bully chum she would have been! They had entered the mountains now, and were progressing more slowly, for the trail was steeper and very rocky. For a few minutes they had been silent. The girl was wondering if they would reach her father's duar before the pursuit had overtaken them. Tarzan was wishing that they might walk on thus forever. If the girl were only a man, they might. He longed for a friend who loved the same wild life that he loved. He had learned to crave companionship, but it was his misfortune that most of the men he knew preferred immaculate linen and their social clubs to nakedness and the jungle. It was, of course, difficult to understand, yet it was very evident that they did. The two had just turned around a projecting rock in the trail when they were brought to a sudden stop. There before them, directly in the middle of the path, stood Numa, El Adria, the black lion. His green eyes looked very wicked, and he bared his teeth and lashed his bay-black sides with his angry tail. Then he roared, the ferocious, the fearsome, terror-inspiring roar of the hungry lion, which is also angry. "'Give me your knife,' said Tarzan to the girl, extending his hand. She slipped the hilt of the weapon into his waiting palm. As his fingers closed upon it, he drew her back and pushed her behind him. "'Walk back to the desert as rapidly as you can. If you hear me call, you will know that all is well, and you may return.' "'It is useless,' she replied, resignedly. "'This is the end.' "'Do as I tell you,' he commanded. "'Quickly. He is about to charge.' The girl dropped back a few paces, where she stood watching for the terrible sight that she knew she would soon witness. The lion was advancing slowly toward Tarzan, his nose to the ground, like a challenging bull, his tail extended now and quivering as though with intense excitement. The ape-man stood, half-crouching, the long Arab knife glistening in the moonlight. Behind him, the tense figure of the girl, motionless as a craven statue. She leaned slightly forward, her lips parted, her eyes wide. Her only conscious thought was wonder at the bravery of the man who dared face with a puny knife the lord with the large head. A man of her own blood would have knelt in prayer and gone down beneath those awful fangs without resistance. In either case, the result would be the same. It was inevitable but she could not repress a thrill of admiration as her eyes rested upon the heroic figure before her. Not a tremor in the whole giant frame, his attitude as menacing and defiant as that of El Adria himself. The lion was quite close to him now, but a few paces intervened. He crouched, and then, with a deafening roar, he sprang. Join us next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Chapter 11 of The Return of Tarzan. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We do appreciate reviews very much, especially if you're an Apple lister. Please do take a moment and send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate that very much. And we do appreciate our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. For less than the cost of a blended coffee, you can support us every month and help 1001 to move forward. We appreciate our Patreon supporters very much. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, everyone, take care, and we'll be back soon.